Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December 5th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have brought to you over 135 poets in 16 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate, and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, James Coates. Hi, James. How are you? Hi, Imogen. I'm good. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Welcome to Poets and Muses. I really appreciate you coming on with me today and bringing with you your poem, How to Survive. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a poet, author, spoken word artist from Southern California. Mm-hmm. I currently reside in the Coachella Valley, mm-hmm. but I spend time in Los Angeles and in the Inland Empire mm-hmm. before making my way out here. Mm-hmm. I have a BFA, but it's in art, not in writing, from Cal Poly and Pomona. Okay. Cool. What kind of art do you do? Well, the degree is in design, but I love all sorts of art, painting, drawing, sculpture. Cool. Anything artistic I am into, except for music, I don't really have the ability to sing. I can't read music. Mm. Um, So, I wish I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good skill to have. I wish I retained my musical skills. I still sing, but <laughs> my reading ability has just basically gone to almost nothing now. But th- when you say design, do you mean like visual design? Graphic design. Graphic design. Okay. Okay. Ah, that's why you have such lovely book covers. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, they are done by me. It's important, though, to have kind of eye-catching book covers that, that are appealing to people. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the one for my most recent collection, All the Ways You're Wonderful, that was a painting I did myself. Oh, cool. Uh, string, string art painting. It was my first time, and there was a couple different versions, but that was the final one that I liked the most. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful. Do you do your own typesetting as well? No wonder you feel comfortable uh, like self-publishing because I, I feel like a lot of self-publishers sometimes neglect or overlook maybe uh, the graphic aspect of it, like the the typesetting, the the layout, the design of their books, and that could have a detrimental effect to their ability to market themselves. Absolutely, yes. So. In addition to my degree in graphic design, I also have one in marketing. Ah, perfect. Um, so they kind of go hand in hand. So 
I've worked in marketing for several years. Okay. And so I kind of understand that world a little bit. And mm-hmm. like, even if it's art, if you plan on selling it, then you have to make sure or it, it looks the part. Right, right, exactly. Did that play a part in your decision to self-publish? You have two books now, right? Yeah. I did want to have creative control. So I went to speak to a couple of small presses mm-hmm. and talk to them about what came with publishing with them. Mm-hmm. And I thought about what they had to offer, and, and it wasn't as much as I was looking for at the time. Mm-hmm. They were like, well, we can help design your book, your cover, format it to get it produced. And I was like, well, that's great, but I can kind of do those things myself. <laughs> they were like, well, we can also help market your book and you know, you get more sales. And mm. I was like, well, I can kind of do that myself too. <laughs> and and so, I'm, so I'm looking for like the benefit. They're like, well, you know, you get credibility academically. So the third one, you you are planning to go with the press then, is that right? Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Wow, that's really so, interesting. So I'm, I'm currently in the CLI publishing program. What is that? Sure. Community Literature Initiative. Okay. It is the organization out of LA that helps poets get their book published through a press or a publisher. Great. But they help you. You meet every week. They help you write the book and take you from beginning to end. And then at the end, you they have what is called an author draft, mm-hmm. in which they invite presses to come here to read and to, to see about your book. Mm-hmm. And if they like you, then you can publish with them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it gives a lot of poets who may not have the network or the experience or know how to do it on their own, that means of getting their work out, out there. Right, right. That's great. It's wonderful to hear that. So that's for Los Angeles poets then? It is based in Los Angeles, but this year they have uh, went online. Mm. And so the online version is accessible to people around the world. So in my particular class, we have someone that is on a um, mountain in Mexico, mm. someone who's in Chicago, mm-hmm. and someone that is in another part of the world. I'm not sure where she's at, but I believe it's East Coast, I think. Mm. Okay. That's fascinating. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that they are 
sort of like uh, utilizing the the silver linings of this COVID shutdown to open up their services for other people from different parts of the world. So it's that's wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Um, going back to your own poetry, do you remember when you started writing poetry? Poetry, probably middle school. Mm. I started writing around maybe seven or eight, but it wasn't poetry mm. until probably maybe about sixth grade or so. And it started really silly, like roses are red, violets are blue kind of thing, <laughs> and just rhyming words together. Mm. But I grew up in a house with many siblings, mm-hmm. several of them older. Mm-hmm. And so writing was a way for me to just get my thoughts out. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what you wrote about in your first poem? Probably love. <laughs> I can't remember it like any details, but either love or family, something to do with, with that. Okay, okay. That is still a favorite topic to mine. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I see some of that in, in what you sent me. Was there a reason that you went to poetry as a way of expressing yourself? I, I know you said you wanted to get your thoughts out, but you could do that with prose as well, so why poetry? That is a good question. Because I did do a lot of stories. Mm. I think it was just another element of telling the story mm-hmm. that poetry was able to offer a different, more, I want to say more beautiful, but just different in its thought process mm-hmm. and elegance in, mm. in its creation. Mm-hmm. But most of the early writing that wasn't poetry was kind of like prose, journaling, that kind of thing. And then by the time I was in high school, instead of taking notes in class, I, I was writing stories. Mm. <laughs> I elaborate James Bond, Indiana Jones type adventure <laughs> stories. <laughs> and, and illustrating, like, mm. illustrating them. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, did you ever, like, attempt to publish your own comics? No, but that was like a childhood kind of dream scenario. Mm. Definitely. Me and some friends did art for a long time. We drew and we painted and did art class and went to high school for four years of art and read comics, <laughs> watched animated shows. Mm. But... I didn't do the comics because I didn't feel like my art was stylistically what comics look for or went for. Mm. And it, it was a source of frustration because I wish I could draw the way friends had to animate that did do comics that were able to draw them out and look like comic books and comic book characters. And no matter how I trying to improve I just didn't have that I didn't have the vision they had it's really something about the way they see the art itself in their mind that I kind of miss mm, mm. I, I guess it's just a different way of expressing yourself right yeah yeah, yeah. 
see a graphic novels are cool, cool and popular now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that would be something that would really be fun to write mm-hmm. and draw. Mm-hmm. Or even a children's book mm-hmm. would be fun to illustrate. Maybe that will happen sometime in the future. I don't know. But yeah, in the past, I would have liked to. It just didn't work out that way. Right, right. Well, now that you have two books under your belt and another on the way, I mean, certainly that can pave the way towards uh, publishing of other materials as well. So, Yes, absolutely. I'm looking at how to construct a, a novel, how to construct a, a screenplay, a theater play. Mm. Um, I'm all about telling people's stories, human stories, and it is different if you go from writing a poem to writing a theater play, but I feel like the the characters and the stories at the heart of what I write and why I write are kind of the the glue holding it all together. Right, right. I feel like the poem you sent that that you're going to read today for us lends itself to... um, possibility of you know like a a, a play or or even a graphic novel or something like that because it depicts a lot of scenarios which are very tragic at the same time it, it would lend itself to the visual elements i think very well now it's probably a good time for you to read that for us and then we can talk about it okay how to survive Don't make too much eye contact with those dressed in blue uniforms. Don't fall asleep in your car, dorm, apartment, or house. Don't be a child playing with a toy in the park, Walmart, anywhere, really. Don't get caught without your gun or with your gun on you or nearby. Don't go to a party. Run from the party. Run. Walk, stand in place or take up space. Don't drive with dark tint or loud music. Too fast, too slow, or in any vehicle too fancy. Don't talk back. Have a bad attitude. Resist unlawful orders or baton to the head. Don't look too successful or confident. Neither look homeless nor suspicious. Don't live in an affluent neighborhood and especially don't try to build your own. Don't attend public school in the inner city or fancy prep schools in the suburbs. Don't stop in towns you don't know or have car trouble and need some help. Don't have a mental health crisis, a medical disorder, or a pre-existing condition. Don't protest for your right to vote. Go to school, have clean water, work, breathe, exist. I don't know all the rules, but these are a good place to start. And most importantly, don't be born a wide-eyed baby with dark skin and grew up thinking you have the privilege of safety. Thank you. I feel like this poem has a PSA quality to it in a very obviously satirical twist to it and that's why when I was talking about the graphic novel I see a lot of these scenarios that could be could be panels for for that if it was 
render in that form, it would be very heart-wrenching as it is your poem. Because I think most, if not all of these, represent a case of brutality. Many are police brutality, but some are not. Like the one where don't stop in towns you do not know or have car trouble and need some help. I forget her name, right? It's a woman who, whose car broke down. I forget if it was late at night or something and she got shot in the back while trying to get some help with her car. Is that the case? That yeah. Uh, no, un- unfortunately, it was another case. Oh, God. That, um, I had in mind. Mm. Uh, there's, I believe, an ex-football player whose car broke down on the highway and he uh, walked to the nearest house to ask for some help and he was shot and killed. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know about that case. You know about the one with the woman? It's it's just so heart-wrenching to know that these are depictions of real-life events that happened and over a short time, too. I think it's within a decade, right? Uh, all of these, and probably many of them within the last five years. Yeah, they're um, probably multiple times. That's a scenario similar has played out but there have been like high profile examples in the last five years for sure mm. yeah was this written before george Floyd? Floyd? thank you yes uh, yeah w- was it uh written before that it was written after that oh wow yeah okay this was the more recent poem that was actually written in a workshop mm. uh, that Spectrum Publishing holds on Saturday. So they were having a call for, for uh, I think, issue 24. And I believe the call was how to stay alive. Mm. And so I went to the to workshop and ended up writing this poem. Mm. And just about what I guess was on my mind at the time. I think the events surrounding George Floyd was definitely in my thoughts. Yeah. I, I was asking that because I see Arma Arbery in here, if I recall correctly. But I don't... I see Eric Gardner with the pre-existing condition, I think. Or was that also George Floyd? <laughs> it could be a number of people, honestly... But yeah, that was the claim that he had a pre-existing condition. Mm. But really that whole line is about how mental health episodes, crisis disorders, result in death so often. Yeah. Um, relationship with police interactions. And I remember adding that line after I had originally written the poem during the workshop. Mm-hmm. A couple days later or a week later when I was editing it, uh, adding that line because a friend of mine, close friend of mine, uh, that's how her brother died. He had a mental condition Mm -hmm. and his interaction with the police ended up with him dead. Mm. And so I definitely wanted to put that in here because it happened so often and 
my son asked me, are they going to kill my brother? Because his brother is autistic and nonverbal. Mm. And we had heard on the news about a boy that was a teenager and his interaction with the police left him dead. Mm. Is the fact that there, there are just so many of these cases the reason behind why you didn't put their names in? I never thought about putting their names in this poem. Mm. That's a good question. It's probably because a lot of people, when they're talking about a specific case, usually says their name or uses their name mm-hmm. the poem. But this is more a, a list of kind of the talking points that says, if only you do these things, then you'll be okay. Mm. And what we've come to learn is that by the end of the poem, it tries to convey is that the rules that are given really aren't going to protect you from becoming one of these cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think about how I teach my son to navigate the day. He is 13 now. Mm. I can share with him these rules in hopes that he will make it home safely. Mm-hmm. But I know that he could he could follow all the rules and still not make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's kind of the point that we we need better practices. Mm-hmm. change going to make these type of things occur less often mm-hmm. and so me not including their name is kind of just like it happens so often that there's going to be another name next week and the week after mm-hmm. yeah it's always interesting when these cases happen and then you have those people who say well if they would have just done this though they were never in that situation. They're likely not to find themselves in that situation. And it's easy to say, right? It's something that people can just throw away. It's a line that people can just throw away and say, well, if they just did that, as if that was the actual solution, even though there's absolutely no testing ground. And in fact, from the list that you have here, a very short list that we know that there are contradictory scenarios that are happening as you said they are arbitrary i don't know if you actually have encountered people who say those things and what do you say to them usually it's online and and i avoid interacting in those type of conversations Mm. because people are really fixed to their viewpoint Mm. and if you try and argue your position with them, uh, I feel like you really aren't going to change their mind. And one example I think of is Colin Kaepernick kneeling. Mm -hmm. Um, The protest is kind of violence that is occurring. Mm -hmm. And how the conversation was spun to, you know, he doesn't support law enforcement, he doesn't support military. And that's 
it's not the proper way to protest um, or to disagree. It feels that there, there's always an excuse or a uh, gaslighting mm. of the real issue because it is difficult to acknowledge and accept that it's going on for some people. Mm-hmm. Whereas people uh, live it on a daily basis. And so it's frustrating to talk with someone and they try to tell you that your reality that you exist in every day doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, I live it every day. What do you mean? Mm -hmm. It's not real. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I often think about, well, how do we start these conversations that are actually beneficial and how do we actually reach those people's hearts that aren't going to be reached through an argument? Mm-hmm. And I feel that's where poetry can come in and just tell the story and let the person see the humanity in the story. Mm-hmm. And then they can decide for themselves whether or not it affects how they feel about situation or about themselves right yeah i agree with you on the us needing to see the humanity in each other and hopefully that will lead to a real change where the base reaction is not always to just shoot kill to (laughs) to be so afraid of somebody's um skin color a pigmentation um to lead them to attach such danger to any of their actions, you know, that, that, that they would feel like, oh, I need to kill this person. Yeah. It's really the, the heart of, of what the, this poem, it fitting in my book, in the current manuscript as I'm writing it, is how do we fight against racism and all the isms, really? because they are built on each other mm-hmm. um, to be aggressive. And so how do we, how do we fight them? Um, mm-hmm. How can we use language and stories to fight them? Mm-hmm. Um, show how they connect, to show how we play a part in it, and ask if we desire to change once we see our part in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... Like, wrapped up in that, just a few, like, a couple of minutes of what you said is uh, a lot of layers. Um, One is uh, just admitting to ourselves that that we take part in it, you know? That the very people that you are trying to convince that they take part in it. I mean, sometimes I think there are ways in which we can change people's minds without them having to take this incredibly hard step of admitting that they take part in something that I think consciously they abhor as well, or they would never admit to it, uh, at least not in public. I mean, in, in a way, there there is some improvement in the fact that people are more ashamed of publicly admitting to racist ideals. Though it's making a ravenous kind of comeback over the last few years still i think for the most part people don't 
want to publicly admit to that. At the same time, you know, it's it's not to the point where these cases aren't happening all the time. These these excessive force cases, whether via the police or just everyday actions, such as the case of both the one that you referred to with the high school, ex-high school footballer, and also the woman whose cars broke down and both got killed by just a, a civilian person. And, of course, Armand Aubrey is also, even though they do have something to do with the police, the fact is they were also uh, civilian. So I think I agree with you that we need to be able to show each other our humanity at the same time. It's like, how do we do it in a way that um, hopefully can sidestep this incredibly difficult process of making people admit to their part in keeping the system alive and very well fed with hatred. Yeah. How do we do that? Yeah. The how is always the hard part. <laughs> and also I think for people who are listening and, and people in the BLM movement especially, maybe they wouldn't want people to sidestep that. Maybe that is a necessary step to healing as well. So Yeah. Possibly. There there are definitely many questions answers that are agreed upon on this topic. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, it kind of shows the diversity of our humanity, doesn't it? Just um, And it doesn't run on, you know, along community lines, because within a community, um, a racial, ethnic, um, religious, whatever community it is, and there is a variety of uh, answers that there, there's not really a uniformity of answers because we're dealing with the we're dealing with individuals at the end of the day. Yeah, there's it's interesting because there there is in certain respects kind of a, a universal experience in oppression, right? And so there may be here in America or where the United States. Uh, with slavery, colorism has been a big issue. Mm-hmm. It is, but the the foundation of that is is racism. Mm-hmm. But in Africa, there is ethnic cleansing, mm-hmm. right? So it isn't a, a racist thing, but it's still you know an oppressive violence that exists, and by not seeing humanity in, you know, your neighbor, your brother, your community mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for their differences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, underlying all that is prejudice, right? Is our just unreasonable assumptions about each other as the demonizing of each other, the dehumanizing yeah. of each other. It's it's just it's to me so sad that uh, as a species we have such a developed ability to dehumanize each other. And I think that's where poetry comes in as the, as the entry point into seeing our humanity and, and the stories 
in our humanity and raising the questions. And I guess it's for each individual to come up with the answers. But as poets, I feel like our job in writing the poem is to tell the story and raise the questions. Yeah, yeah. I hope, I mean, I definitely hope that this is something that we can achieve in, in our works however way we can, right? Um, and I think, I hope we, as collectively, we can form enough of a weight to have, uh, I, I think we do have impact. I, I, I also wonder how much impact and how much impact is also ultimately necessary to change so that it can both immediately slow the rate at which these incidents occur and ultimately to stop these incidents from occurring, uh, period. Like you, I, I also wrote in reaction, though not from lived experience, but from the news of one of the more recent killings. And so I, I'm going to read that and then we can talk about it. This is called Buckling. Socks double over like unanswered prayer flags, limping in the somber realization of a multiplication of injustices old and new. Reminders prick tenderized sensibilities arching from overstretch. Under the load of soaked encumbrances, never given the opportunity to unburden their tears. Before rains of inequities pour their heavy bereavement to drench the satin to points of oversaturation, causing torrential overflow, flooding earth, choking on inundated sobs with no breaks for breath. Inescapable gravity grounds sorrows too laden to raise, please exhausted by the added weight of new abuse. Thank you for that poem. Thanks. What is the story that you were trying to convey in this poem? I think I may understand it, but I want to find out what your thoughts were. Sure. Um, I, I also would love to hear your understanding of it as well. I wrote this after reading the article that's in the footnote, which was an NPR article about how, how I think it included the video of when Armand Arbery was shot and the description of him just going on a run, doing his exercise, during the shot shutdown, so you know, being able to go out and just just exercise would really be something that would relieve tension, right? Mm -hmm. But then he was shot. He was shot by these two men, who one of whom worked with the local police, uh, and then a third man who somehow was there in the nick of time to record this murder. And 
this was, you know, the first of three brutal murders of African-American people in May that led to the protests in association with George Floyd's death. And they were just like in quick succession, one after another. But when I wrote this poem, I don't think, I forget if the Breonna Taylor case had taken place just yet, or no, probably not. And even before, you know, it's not like 2020 wasn't <laughs> replete with these cases. And so I was sort of sitting with this article, and um, I think it was the day after I was looking at a line of laundry with socks. They, they were on the laundry line, just waiting to dry. And they really did remind me of like pictures of Nepali prayer flags because they were really colorful. And it kind of made me think of unanswered prayers. And I think of all the the family members of those who have been killed previously, what they might have prayed for, and how there seems to be just a quickening of things happening that maybe it's just a quickening to me because, you know, the police now have dash cams and lapel cams and that, you know, that show us these horrific killings. And this was caught on social media. And, and so we see now for with our own eyes what's happening. And it just feels like they've never been addressed. There's never been enough room to, you know, time to make room to address each case before the next case comes and the next case comes. And I, I was just wondering how overwhelming it must feel and I kind of started with that sense of overwhelming sadness that I was feeling from this case. And I kind of went from there. Okay. Wow. So I did get um, a similar feeling and just the weight of the experience and then like kind of the repetition. So you use multiplication of injustices, old and new, and then kind of like what may happen with like a, a body arching, stretching, and just the effect that the weight of, you know, constant bombardment of these stories, these images has on the people experiencing them. Mm-hmm. In one sense, us all, everyone that, that sees it, taking place, and then also those that are experiencing similar situations mm-hmm. um, and have been experiencing those situations for, for a long time. And when will they get a break? Mm-hmm. And the interesting part about Ahmaud Arbery being captured and, uh, on video and George Floyd being captured on video and it going by payroll is were able to see to see it and then to decide on their position how they felt about it and it's one of those things where it's like you may know that it happened but if it's not happening to you it's not really something your mind notices but then 
all over television, and it's like you can't help not noticing it and becoming aware of it. And then I think some people examine how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I think you capture that in the poem, that examination. How do I feel about it? How, how do the individuals that are experiencing it feel about it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's powerful for a poet to capture and share. Thank you. Yeah. I feel exhausted when I read this poem. I, I don't know if that's the feeling you get, because you have the ac- extra layer of having to experience this. So. Yeah, it is exhausting. It's incredibly exhausting to feel it in your body day after day. Mm-hmm. And not just like the, the mental aspect of knowing that you're going to feel it, but everything that comes with the anticipation that it, it's going to happen again, that you won't really see justice served mm-hmm. uh, in many, many occasions. There's a frustration that builds there. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond the exhaustion. Yeah, it feels like being buried alive, sort of. That you think of a handful of dirt, they're kind of like nothing, right? They weigh like nothing. But what if it's just layers and layers and layers and layers, and it won't stop? It won't stop. The only thing that stops is you. That's being buried. And it has this like this suffocating feeling to all of these incidents happening because again, there's no redress. There's not even time to really process each case because there's so many. Yeah, and that's really the sad part is you know someone can ask you, did you hear about the shooting? Which one? Did you hear about the guy that got killed? Which one? Oh, not that one, this other one. Like, I recently wrote a poem in a workshop uh, this Tuesday. Mm -hmm. It was about the mental health aspect of what this kind of trauma does Mm -hmm. to the person experiencing it throughout the day. And so they may wake up in the morning happy to start their day, turn on the news, and, and then, bam, like, can't read about that or see a video or hear about it and still be happy and be be like I'm gonna you know head off to work in the glee mood it changes your day kind of ruins the day if not longer than that you know and so I definitely feel like even joy in itself is is a revolutionary act mm-hmm. because it is sometimes hard to find and it's all the like you said suffocating yeah yeah and i think you know for some someone like you who because we know what is in common in all of these cases right we 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 know that underlying all these cases the <laughs> what's in common is their racial identity. Uh, 
and when when you share a characteristic that becomes a risk factor how can you go about your business how can you put your mind or section your mind off from the trauma of people being killed for random reasons apart from this this common thread when you know that that you have this risk that it's been made a risk factor this the fact that you have a certain pigmentation on your skin which is again the most ridiculous reason for killing someone you like how i can't when i talk about it, i can't wrap my head around how inane it is to kill someone over a pigment i i just i just don't understand that i you know it just makes no sense yeah it doesn't yeah i found myself reading a lot on racism and social justice and inequality books from authors like michael eric dyson Coats and, and you know, doing the work to try and understand, you know, how we got here mm-hmm. and, and what's going on. And at some point, I thought, why am I doing all the work trying to figure out why we're here when the change isn't gonna come? Through me, mm. I'm not the one in power to change what's going on, and yet I'm here studying it like I do have the power. Mm. I didn't invent racism. Mm. I'm not the one responsible to destroy it in you know the current form here in the United States, and so. What control do I have? I'm experiencing the suffocating, but what control do I have to change them? Right. And so we see protests, Mm -hmm. but we've seen protests 60 years ago. Right. You know, asking for the same thing. These don't kill us. Mm. And the fact that the protests are still happening in 20 and we're still asking is like have we made progress Mm. does protest work taking a knee and marching in the street has that solved anything Mm. if not that then what will right Mm. to me the protests taking a knee uh, you know whether through massive outpouring of people just on the streets or taking a knee as Kaepernick has done. I think one of the things it has done is basically pull people's attention into this issue again. You know, in, in a sense, it's sort of like if we cannot be left in peace, then you should not be left in peace either. And I do think more and more people, again, the progress is slow, is unsatisfying but there there is the progress in that people are now ashamed of admitting openly 
you know, openly racist ideology. Certain people. Obviously, there are others who are countering that by becoming louder, embracing them even as a, as a reaction to it. So it's hasn't it hasn't been a silver bullet certainly. It has worked on certain segments of the population, has raised raised more awareness. If nothing else, it has trained the media's cameras onto this issue to dive uh, dive into the whys and the hows and you know all the W's and and and, and it in a self awareness to me is a good thing. A better thing would be that this stops happening, obviously. So how do we get from here to there, right? Going back to what we talked about before is the issue. And I agree with you about humanizing in, in as many ways as possible, humanizing each other and seeing each other's humanity. And that's where something like representation comes in you know, in the media, for instance, because I think one of the things that's been sorely lacking in the media is representation, diverse representation of the African-American population within the U.S., because it's not one particular, um, it's not a monolith. There there are different social classes, um, African-American population occupies a diverse social economic uh, classes in this country and the satisfaction that some media companies have many media companies have with just representing one having this token character whether or not they realize this continues to dehumanize because they keep saying, well, you're only one. You're only one particular way of acting. You're only this, and you can't be that. So I think poetry offers a different perspective. Presenting African-American poets um, also represents a different perspective because in the diversity within the African-American population, you can see the humanity, the individual, in addition to their color. Yeah. These poems are important. Yeah. That I'm writing a perspective, and you're writing a perspective, but they're both about the same topic. in order to convey or at least start a conversation about the experience. Mm-hmm. And we both have a different lens to bring into the poem. And we also have a different circle mm-hmm. that can discuss the poem and yeah. discuss these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's that is the necessary work, not just of poets, but of everyone that desires change, is to, to have, have those conversations with the people around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, it's, not a, it's not an easy conversation to have. No. At all. No, it's, it's not. But the desire is 
to, to want to have it is important. Yeah. And I've seen it over the last year in two of the book clubs I participate in mm-hmm. and in several uh, poetry open mic groups. Mm-hmm. Diverse participation in wanting to create a better, more equal mm-hmm. world. Mm. And that gives me hope. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think if we can start having these conversations, especially in respectful ways where we can listen to each other and give room for each other to talk in this exchange in in some ways the exchange itself is equalizing and it shows that we have the ability to communicate our thoughts and our differences and you know see where we have in common and where thoughts differentiate and why i think is is very important so it's despite the fact that it is, I imagine, incredibly re-traumatizing each time to have to talk about a poem like this one and that you brought. And, and again, unfortunately, this is, you know, work that's forced upon you because, you know, you're not the one who's perpetuating it. At the same time, you are tasked with that responsibility. At the same time, I think also the reading up of these subjects I don't know, you, you know, you let me know if that's how you feel as well. At least for me, when I am reading up on a subject, if I am subjected to discrimination, when I am, reading on the subject gives me a window into an understanding that helps to shape my own uh, creation of a solution that's tailored to me. So I don't know if that might be some of what you felt when you were reading up on these articles that you mentioned before. Yeah, the I would like to write this happy love poem about nature. Mm-hmm. Um, they are love poems. They're my favorite uh, mm-hmm. type of poems to write. But I do feel that there is a responsibility to document mm-hmm. this history and these experiences mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it does become overwhelming when you go to a, a reading in a urban area and you hear similar poems using similar language over and over again mm-hmm. um, the, the strange fruit terminology mm-hmm. um, happens a lot mm-hmm. in people's poems and it you mentioned re-traumatized and it sort of is for me to hear that mentioned over and over again because mm-hmm. um, I would like to hear something different a different story that isn't played out the way I know they play out mm-hmm. to give me a different ending maybe an Afro futurist ending that you know, it's imaginative and different and hopeful. Mm. Um, but that's usually not the poems that are presented. Mm. And so 
I just think about what, what responsibility do I have. So part of my writing journey was in my 20s, I didn't write at all. Um, so about like 12 years. And so it wasn't until the end of grad school that I met an individual and this was about five years ago. Mm. And he invited me to an open mic. Mm. And I had recently wrote a piece about something that happened during a presidential rally. Mm -hmm. And it was the first poetry I wrote in like 12 years. Mm. And uh, I to the open mic to share. Mm. And that was my first time ever reading in front of people. Mm. And at that point, I was like, I, I can't stay silent. I have to say something. And this is the means or the uh, tool I'm going to use to speak on these issues. Mm. And through my research, through reading the books and you know, doing all this work, it, that's really where I found the interconnectedness, this web of the isms, the oppressive isms that will work together. Mm. Uh, they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I may not experience the effects of patriarchy, but I do benefit from its existence as a man. So I do have a responsibility to see how I can make things more equitable. Participate mm. in helping the world be more just in that respect. And I feel like, you know, that applies to so many of these other areas, right. environments. What am I doing my part? LGBT community, where am I doing my part? Mm -hmm. um, capitalism, where am I doing my part to make things more fair and equitable? Right. Right. And I think it's wonderful that you haven't galvanized and that you see the interconnectedness in the isms and that you are doing your part um, in ameliorating, making better some of these conditions for both um, you know people within your community as well as outside because it's again there's a I mean it's interconnected but it's, it's also um, intersectionality of the isms and I think we we do need to do that in the parts that we can do and I think if everybody does their part or if majority of people do their part the movement will achieve more results and faster than if we only look to a few people to do their part, you know, if we only raise up certain just, you know, symbolic leaders. I mean, obviously, symbolic, symbolic leadership has its advantages um, since we're talking on Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, commemoration day. So symbolisms are important at the same time. You know, he was able to achieve what he did also because of the work of so many people, including women who were not acknowledged until more recently. And it is very important that we all do our part, as many of us as we can, to make the world a better place. And that includes having conversations with each other, reaching out across communities, communities that maybe you don't feel like you have a kinship with 
you can still reach out to them and many times and and because sometimes the first experience is not always good and so and we have to like remind all of ourselves that you know these are not representations of an entire group but rather individuals who happen to belong in that group so and, and it's it is in that that we can counter at least do our part in countering the isms that are so prevalent uh, in our society and globally speaking not not just within the u.s and with that even though i think we can definitely continue this conversation for hours on end um in terms of <laughs> our interview and our episode i would like to conclude by asking you if you have any or your favorite virtual events that you would recommend, poetry events, and also how people can follow you online. Favorite poetry event. Spoken Literature Arts Movement has twice a month poetry writing workshop that I attend. They're amazing at Mm -hmm. being able to pull out great writing. on various topics. I don't know why they're so good at it, but they are. Mm-hmm. So I keep going back. Great. Uh, so that's a great one for anyone that's interested in sharing uh, or in trying to write um, pieces. Mm-hmm. And then Sunday Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. we get together and we just read and it's the diverse community and um, we have individuals Individuals from as far as Nigeria coming, mm. and people all over Los Angeles and different backgrounds mm. just coming together to share poetry. So that's Sundays at four mm. Pacific, and then I am starting a writing workshop in relation to my book mm-hmm. um, starting next month on Wednesday, the first Wednesday. 6 p.m. Pacific time, mm-hmm. and it's a generative workshop. Okay. Um, so mm-hmm. we are going to talk about, or be writing about, um, social justice issues. Great. And so it's a place for um, people that are interested in writing about those topics to come and write and share. Mm-hmm. And then for me, if you're interested in following me, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. MR, Loving Words, mm-hmm. or on Facebook at James Coates. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending um, your afternoon with me and talking about our respective poems. I really appreciate both your time investment as well as your emotional investment in talking about this incredibly heart-wrenching topic. So thank you again. Thank you for having me. Of course. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com.
Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.